welcome to the Boil Cow Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hi, Don. I'm Sam. Sam, so glad you're here. So what's been going on, Don? Well, I'm just sitting over here letting go as hard as I possibly can. Tell me more about this, Don. I am letting go so hard that I can't feel my hands. I can't, I can't Don, feel how? my extremities. But your hands, they're, are they okay? No, they're numb. I'm, they're starting to disappear. Well, you know, we're all here because we're not all there, Don. Actually, that expression usually refers to that we're not all here mentally. Yes, but this is more attesting to your being a spiritual gas giant. Yeah, I'm physically <laughs> turning into my spiritual form. Exactly. My ethereal form. Hmm. This AA stuff really works, Sam. <laughs> Keep coming back, Don. <laughs> we have a guest, and she seems to be here in corporeal form. In full corporeal form. Even her hands are visible. <laughs> Hi, who are you? Hi, I'm Rita. Hey, Rita. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you could make it. Now, Rita, let's just jump right in with when did you get sober? I got sober my first day without drinking was mm -hmm. April 18th, 2000. Mm -hmm. Where was that? Where did you get sober? That was in Chicago, Illinois. Chicago. What was the most crucial thing that happened to you that, to where you were finally able to let go and join AA? Because for me, it was the last place I wanted to go. Yeah, so I remember that pretty vividly. I had been drinking secretly um, for a long time and my husband knew I was drinking. I had alcohol hidden all over the house and from time to time he would find it. One day I found um, a little sticky note on my bottle in my sweaters that said, this is our problem. Oh. Um, so there were, there were signs, clear signs in my life that things were not going well for me. Um, aside from the fact that I couldn't wake up in the morning or go to sleep at night. And um, I had a very young daughter I just kept thinking to myself, I have to get sober because I can't be one of those moms whose daughters can't bring her friends home from school because she doesn't know what shape her mom's going to be in. Mm. And that haunted me. And every year on her birthday, I would just collapse in like despair because I was still drinking. So, um, which went on till how til she was, she was how four. Four, okay. Yeah. So I actually got sober when she was five. One Sunday morning, I, w I made uh, breakfast for my family, and we were sitting around eating, and my husband looked at my hands, and he said, Are you shaking? And I said, Just a little bit. And they finished breakfast, and then he got up from the table, and he put his coat on, and he put my daughter's coat on her, and he walked out the back door and he said, we'll be back after dinner because I know what you need to do today. 
And as I heard the door close quietly behind him, because he never screamed or slammed doors, I knew I would lose my family. Wow. Was he saying that you needed to get sober or he that you needed to get drunk? He knew I had to drink. Oh, he knew you had to all drink day. all day. And so uh, he didn't want to be there. Wow. And so what did you do that day? I drank. Yep, I drank all day. Um, that must have been a really uh, happy <laughs> oh. social. Because drinking is fun. <laughs> yeah, and I did my drinking quietly at home by myself because we had already had the conversation that I shouldn't be drinking. So I hid it. And I, I did drink all day, but I think, you know, I've kind of lost track of specifically how long time um, periods of time were, but it was within three weeks that I went to, to check myself into treatment. And in between that time, I decided that I needed to try every alcohol that was out there on the market that I might someday think I missed out on. Oh. So I had a lot of parties in my closet um, before <laughs> I decided. Party. <laughs> that was unexpected. Party in the closet. <laughs> before I decided to go check myself in. So I went to the hospital that had a treatment center. And I sat in this little room with my husband while they did intake on me. And they left me in there just a little too long. And I was ready to explode. <laughs> so I just said, I'm only waiting like 10 more minutes and I'm out of here. And so... Um, How long were you in there? Probably, you know, I don't even remember Decades. anymore. But it was yeah. over an hour. And that was too long for me to sit. Oh, totally. absolutely. Over an hour now. Yeah, that was way too long for me By to yourself sit or, or with, with, him, with your husband? With my but, husband. But nothing to do. For something to happen. Wow. So I left that day and went home and I just told him I was going to check into other treatment options. And I. Ones that treated you with a little more respect. <laughs> do you know who I am? <laughs> or, or gave me drugs yes. so that I didn't flip out. That's what I was afraid of. Yeah. Probably, I don't know, less than three weeks later, I did actually check myself into the same place. Same place? <laughs> well, most of the paperwork um, was already done, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And for the first time in my life, I was actually really honest about how much I was uh, drinking. Because it was me and the nurse sitting in the chair opposite me and I knew I wanted to stop and that's why I felt like I had to kind of pour it out if I was ever going to get better. Wow so was that the first time that you had ever been honest with anyone else about how much you drank? Yes. Okay. Had you ever tried to quit before? Um, I had tried to quit on my own. Mm -hmm. um, that was like I would, so my patheticness on a daily basis was I would take my daughter to preschool and then if I needed alcohol, I would stop at the store on my way home, 8.30 in the morning, 
how many groceries do you have to put in your cart to make <laughs> two <laughs> handles of vodka look inconspicuous? <laughs> I'm having a party in my closet. Um, yeah. So, and then I would go home and I would drink until probably one o'clock. And then I would take a nap, sleep part of it off. I'd get up, shower, change, and go pick her up from school. And then I would do, like, family things until they went to bed, and then I would drink myself to sleep. Wow. So while I was sitting, drinking, between 8.30 and 1 every day, I would mark little tick marks on my... It's the most ridiculous thing looking back because I would try to figure out how much am I really drinking. Like, I, I understand this. <laughs> but like I, I, I did that on the fridge. <laughs> yeah. So like then after like the fifth one, I couldn't mark the tick marks anymore. Like they were all like scrawled across the paper or just non-existent. And then I would get up and I would think, I'll try that again tomorrow. Okay. Because. For some crazy reason, I thought if I know how much I'm drinking, then I won't do it. But that was completely irrational. And why didn't I just check the bottle? <laughs> right? Because no one else was drinking out of it. But that... <laughs> wow. That didn't occur to me. No, you need, you need to keep records. I kept a record <laughs> on my computer. I started a file uh, with a calendar to see because we were going to uh, the UU church and they were, there was, I signed up for this class that met every Sunday night. The problem was I, for some reason, was sick every Sunday night. And I was like, why do I get like the flu every Sunday night? And I was like, I need to keep a record of when I'm sick and, and did it. And it was like, <laughs> Every, Every Sunday like clockwork. Night, like <laughs> clockwork. It's the weirdest thing. I would get this little disease or something. Never putting it together that I was drinking all weekend and I was sick from drinking because I was on Sunday morning, I was throwing up sick and trembling and cold sweats and just a horrible hangover and then have to drink. And this is the second day of doing that and so then I'd have some hair of the dog in the afternoon and then just enough to get steady and go to this meeting and go, why do I feel so bad? I couldn't see it was the drinking. <laughs> well, of course, even if you could see it was the drinking, it wouldn't have been the drinking. Well, yeah, yeah. So my unconscious mind was just like a, the ability to go, it's not that, <laughs> you know, it's like just the mind lights on it like a moth and flies right off. You know, <laughs> get away from that. That or it's a completely a blind spot. I yeah. Mean, we, we are just unable to see it. Yeah. One time I was drinking Clos de Bois white wine and I said, I'm just going to drink it down to the seat <laughs> of the bottle. And yeah. that's like half a bottle and that's all I'm going to drink. So I was controlling my drinking, and I drank it, and I looked over, and I'd gotten down to about halfway through the sea. And I was going, well, let's try it on the next bottle. Screw this. <laughs> and I drank the rest of the bottle, 
And then I opened up another bottle and I drank it down and very precisely drank it down to the top of the sea and quit. And I felt good about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> we did the craziest thing. We did. I was, uh, I'm in a, um, friend posted on uh, Facebook in a uh, recovery, uh, secret recovery group something an article about you know the average number of drinks that a uh, an average drinker takes per week i don't remember the numbers but it was maybe like 1.3 drinks per day is what an average american drinks over the course of a year and i quit and did some quick little math <laughs> so i was drinking two to three weeknights per week half of a fifth of vodka. So that is, I don't remember now, but it was like, you know, uh, 10 shots, we'll say. Yeah. So 10 drinks. <laughs> you boosted the national yeah, Exactly. <laughs> and then on weekends and holidays, I was drinking half of a half gallon, half of a handle, which I'd never even heard it called a handle. I recall that you said that. I know. And I'm looking up these numbers on Google and I'm finding out that it's called a handle. Um, never knew that. I de I'm definitely not a cool drinker. Um, <laughs> but I was drinking half of a half gallon on weekend nights and holiday nights. So how long, how long did it take you to get the years to drink up your years? About two, week, about two weeks. About, about two weeks. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I cannot imagine drinking that little. That would just be annoying. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Well, I tell was, people... You know, we all get our allotment, allotment of alcohol for our lifetime. I just, I just finish faster. You're yeah. an overachiever. I'm an overachiever. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Or maybe it's, it's like being an accelerated in school, things like That's that. Right. You know, we're, That's we're, right. We're brilliant. We're brilliant alcoholics. <laughs> brilliant drinkers. <laughs> and we're really good at math. Only if, <laughs> only if Google's involved. <laughs> the, uh, or we're manipulating math. Yeah. So, you got into treatment center. What got you into Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, so when I was in uh, when I was in treatment, I told them that I thought I just needed therapy, and the lady looked at me and she said, with a very kind voice, she said, "Well, Rita, you could try that." but they're going to send you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, there's no way around it. So you can either go straight there, or you can go through therapy to there. But that's where you, that's where you need to be. So I gave in, basically, to that. And then they had us go to AA meetings while we were in treatment. So the treatment center that I happened to be at, I did not know when I signed in what I was in for because at the time I checked myself in, they were redoing their whole treatment program. So this was in a major hospital setting, but they had a treatment program within the hospital setting. So that's what I thought I was going for. But when I actually got upstairs, I walked in the door and the door slammed behind me and that had that click noise and locked I realized in. that I was in the locked psychiatric unit and 
I had this look of horror, I'm sure, on my face. And I turned to, and I said, wait, this isn't what I had in mind. Can I? And she said, no. Wow. No, no, you're here. It'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I just assumed that I was in, like, checked in to a treatment program like the hospital had had in the past, but they were redoing the whole thing, revamping it. And so all of the people who were checking in for treatment got mixed with the inpatient psych patients. And that was um, a horrifying and interesting experience. Well, we're all here because we're not all there. Oh, (laughs) good tie-in, good (laughs) tie-in. So that sounds kind of like one of those uh, God doing for you what you couldn't do yeah, for yourself things. A little bit. Yeah, and I had become a smoker, so I drank when I smoked, and I smoked when I drank. And I walked in the door, the door slammed, they put a patch on my back, and I was done drinking and smoking. All and at I, once. And Ooh. I haven't picked up either since. Wow. You know, we were just talking in our previous episode about quitting things in the order that they'll kill us or, or becoming a saint all at once. Um, and my experience with that was, you know, I, I quit smoking shortly after I quit drinking too, because they went hand in hand, but so many people don't and you don't have to folks unless you're in treatment or yeah, you might have to, if you're locked behind a slamming door type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a choice. There was no caffeine. There was no, there was no alcohol. There was no caffeine and there was, no cigarettes. My God, uh, and you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, it was decaf coffee and everything. Like, it mm. was completely cold turkey but on everything. When did you b- begin to feel comfortable as a human being again after that? Wow, that's a good question. I remember being afraid to go home. I was there for 11 days. That's not a long time. No, I think they were really just detoxing me and making me like, ready to go to AA on the outside. I remember being really afraid to go home because I just knew my routine there wasn't a healthy one. Mm. And I had been fired from my job, so I didn't have that to go back to. I really didn't know what I was going to do. So I ended up going into a intensive outpatient mm-hmm. program for, I don't remember how many weeks, six maybe. And then I did like outpatient, like three hour program after that. And then partnered it with AA meetings on the outside, you know, in the community. You did that consume your daytime? Mostly, you know, I had, I had my daughter to take care of. My husband traveled most of the time. So I remember, (laughs) I remember people saying to me, you have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I remember saying back, well, I have a little girl at home. She, like, what am I going to, what am I supposed to do with her? And they would say, you'll figure it out. And I think back to that today, and I sponsor a young woman with children. And I honestly don't feel comfortable just saying that. You know, like, I think that, that's kind of the easy way out. Like you can say you'll figure it out, but we need to give people practical advice on how to manage that. For and example, there, well, there are meetings that have childcare. There aren't too many, but there are some. Mm-hmm. 
you know, sometimes when we're drinking, we don't think that people will help us because we have to be independent and take care of everything ourselves. And that's the way I thought about things. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about, oh, well, what about Carrie who picked her daughter up at preschool the same time I do? Maybe she could pick, you know, my daughter up at the same time. Right. And, and those things never crossed my mind unless somebody would help me figure that out. Right. And remind me that, no, you don't have to do this by yourself. There are people who will help you. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask for so, help. And, and I think it's also important to, to say here that those of us who are in the rooms already, it's okay to offer. Help. That's right. It's okay to offer suggestions. Um, experience. That's part of what we do is share right. our experience and say, well, mm -hmm. this is what happened for me when I had a child to take care of. That's right. I, I think that's really important for us to do that for each other. This is a give and take program. We, we have to get used to asking and we have to accept help as well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And we have to, we have to set priorities and one priority for your daughter to be able to grow up in a life where she's not worried to bring her friends home is for you to stay sober. And for you to stay sober, you have to go to meetings. And that's got to be a priority. It's like I, I had, I struggled with that a lot and that go, well, going to meetings, yeah, but I have these things that I have to do. I've got, I've got work and I've got family and I've got to do this and I've got to do this obligation. It's like, but none of it matters if you're drinking. I had to prioritize going to meetings first. And that seems easy for us to think now, but at the time, Oh, yeah. It's impossible. Like, I could not imagine that that was okay for me to do. It just didn't seem, it didn't seem right, for one thing. It felt, it felt selfish. Um, I didn't understand the difference between selfishly acting and... Selfishly acting for the benefit of others. Yeah, and selfishly taking care of myself so that I could take care of other people. I didn't understand that. Yeah. It's like you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first in the airplane as it's going down. It's such a great analogy. And hopefully the airplane doesn't go down. Yes. Um, you know, I, I feel the need to share something right now. And that is uh, Don and I were talking before you got over here, just chit-chatting. And, and one of the things we were talking about is uh, how I'm doing, because, you know, it is all about me. Um <laughs> And, and one of the things that I, I was talking about was going to meetings and how in the course of my recovery from back surgery and, and some other um, difficulties I've experienced over the past couple months, uh, whereas I was going to four meetings a week typically, uh, I'm now doing about two, typically two. I've got nothing but excuses as to why I'm not going to meetings. I'm tired. And I am. I'm legitimately, I'm worn out by the time five o'clock hits, but I can still go. And sitting here listening to you two talk, particularly the 90 and 90 stuck in my head, and I am not committing to that right now, <laughs> but it's in my head, so who knows? Um, sitting here talking with you two and listening to the conversation that's just happened has brought about in me that 
idea, that that willingness to, to look at things differently and to uh, to stop coming up with excuses. Mm -hmm. Well, the mind is really good at coming up with excuses to not go to a meeting. <laughs> it is. Well, and going to meetings are, are one of those things that, you know, regardless of where I am in the longevity of my sobriety, going to meetings helps me. Yeah. In the very beginning, um, it was the interruption to what am I going to do with my, 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 my routine can't be what it was, so I need this new routine. So I went to meetings. I went to meetings a lot. And there's I, a lot of hours to fill. There are so, so many. Yes, <laughs> there really are. And, <laughs> and what am I going to do with me? And that yeah. was one of those things that would always throw me for a loop when a holiday would hit. You know, I finally got my AA routine down Monday through Friday and then Saturday, Sunday. All right. So I've got this weekdays and weekends routine in, in recovery. And whoa, wait a minute. We got Monday off. What am I going to do with me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I found things to do, such as going to even more meetings. Yeah. Um, but meetings are incredibly important. They were hugely important in my early recovery, and they are still, um, they're still important. That's, yeah, they really are. It's, it's where I get pointed in the right direction. We were talking about complacency in the meeting that I went to last night. And I liked what one guy said there, which I said in a different way. I have a home group, and I don't miss my home group meeting for any reason because I'm committed to going to my home group meeting and that protects me against myself and against the feeling that uh, if I, I'm tired, I just don't feel like going. Well, that doesn't matter for my home group meeting. I have to go to my home group meeting because that's what I do. And uh, this guy said that he's he does that not with a home group meeting, but he's got, I've got four meetings I go to and I go to them because those are the meetings that I go to. And when they start, I have to be there, and there is no negotiation. I go to the meetings. I don't care how I'm feeling. I don't care what's going on. I will go to the meetings because that is the deal, <laughs> and I'm doing it. And, uh, and the same thing with my morning prayer. No negotiation. I have to do it. doesn't care how I feel. And oh, I really kind of like that because that's really what I had to do at the beginning is no negotiation. I've got to do it. I don't care. It doesn't it's not up to me anymore. This is what I do. And that that kind of commitment is good. It is. Yeah, and you know, in the beginning at least it kept me from being afraid later on in the day because I felt like if I do what my sponsor and everyone in this program told me tells me to do, and that was one of the things they told me to do, that if I did that, I had less of a chance of drinking later in the day. So it felt like a safety net for me, too. And I remember not knowing, like you said, Sam, not knowing what you were going to do with yourself. I remember so vividly, I had this rocking sofa in my um, sunroom. It was this little sofa, and I would sit on it. With my and I would literally sit on my hands and I would rock and I would like pray or just sit there with nothing in my brain. I don't even know what, just practicing sitting still because I didn't know how to do that. 
I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what that meant really. Yeah. You know, I knew foxhole prayers and I knew, I knew the Lord's prayer. I knew prayers from church, but I didn't know conscious contact, my, a God of my own understanding. I didn't know how to pray to that God or that higher power. I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about that. And I, so I would sit on the sofa and rock in the morning. And then of course I would find myself out somewhere else in the house. And then I would have to bring myself back and sit. And I committed to doing that for like half an hour every day. It's meditation. It is. And now <laughs> I call that meditation. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but that is what it is. Yeah. That that is that was the that was the best I could do at the time when it came to prayer and meditation. That was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would get down on my knees to pray because mm-hmm. that's what I was told to do. It felt very uncomfortable, but that's what I was told to do, and it became more and more comfortable. And then it became comforting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I and, like that. And but the meditation took a lot longer to stick. And you're right. That's that's how it started. I just had to sit on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you find yourself you in another part of the house, have to go sit on your hands again. Maybe well, there are people who can meditate while they run, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that is so perfect. What what a wonderful description of it. I that mean, is, it that really is, is what meditation is. I mean, we talk about it with a breathing meditation, and your mind wanders away from your breath and you go, okay, oh, well, there it is. There's my mind over there. I need to come and bring it back here, back to my breath. It's the same thing, except you're talking about physically wandering off. But <laughs> you have to start <laughs> physical. Right. You know, I don't know, act, and your brain will follow. That's true. It is that thing of acting our way into uh, right living as opposed to living our way into way, the right thing. Right thing. Yeah. Fix that, Don. <laughs> do, do a post edit <laughs> on that. That was good. <laughs> you, you had it. Rita, what's something that, in, when you first started uh, working the steps, what was some place in one of the steps that you could share that was like a, a real turning point for you where oh this is amazing this is working um some epiphany yeah so i remember a couple the first one i guess was with step three and i remember very clearly thinking as a the perfectionist that i am that this is a step i have to do perfectly i was very afraid of not doing that one well turning your will and my life over to the care of god God, as i understand yeah i was very afraid of not doing that one correctly because that seemed pivotal in the recovery program and i wanted to get an a little did you know (laughs) it was every day from now on that's right (laughs) and uh i had the most patient loving sponsor which she was exactly what I needed. And she never told me I was thinking wrong, but just gave me another way of thinking about it. She said, it is important to read very thoroughly about it. It's very important to realize how God is already working in your life. And it's very important to be serious about taking it. And I was able to, 
it just seems like the right things happen when you're ready to see them. And they were probably there all along, right? But I wasn't in the frame of mind or in the space to see them and pay attention to them yet. And when I started to read about step three and really um, understand it from the perspective that my sponsor shared with me, then I started realizing how God already was working in my life. I just hadn't been aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was an epiphany for me. Like, oh my gosh, this is already happening. Uh huh. And then that felt a little safer. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other part of that, that made me feel safe taking the step was that, that it's natural to pull it back my will, but that when I notice it and become aware of it, I can give it back. And that felt okay to me. Like I wouldn't mess it all up. Yeah. And that's, that's why I said it's <laughs> daily for the rest of your life. I mean, that's, that's right. what it is, pulling it back and letting it back out. And, that's right. Well, and it's such a wonderful thing that, yeah. that goes right back to what you were talking about with your meditation. Yeah, you know, it is. Yeah, I find myself in another part of the house and I go and sit back down on the sofa. And same thing with that will, you know. Yeah. I find that I'm taking over again and oh, march it right back over here and sit on that sofa. Will. Oh, no, you don't. You come back here and sit on your hands. Will. But, you know, even, I guess if I think about it, even earlier, because I was going to say step five was pivotal to me because when I finished and I went home to sit quietly and do six and seven. Step five, sharing. Sharing. Your with, inventory. That's with, right. With the sponsor usually now. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I that's how I did mine. When I went home to sit on the sofa and do six and seven, I... Um, I think I felt humble. I felt humility mm -hmm. for maybe the first time that I could recognize it um, in a real way. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I felt a part of. And the, I felt this warmth and light in my core that I had not felt for a very, very long time. And that gave me um, momentum to keep going. That was a spiritual experience. Yeah. Physical, a, a physical feeling of a spiritual experience. And it was by working with my sponsor mm -hmm. and being as honest as I could humanly be and pouring my heart out. Yeah. If you, it's, the, the thing with a spiritual experience, I've had a couple of physical feelings that were so strong that that, that there was a spiritual experience with it. And the, the problem is, is it goes away. And it's so wonderful that I had those things because at times when I'm filled with doubt, I kind of go, oh, but that happened. And that really did happen, didn't it? So... What, you know, what was that if it wasn't real? And I've, I mean, I did that recently when I had surgery and in recovering from surgery, I had lost all conscious contact with God, but I knew that my life had been turned around and that these things really happened to me in the past. And there's no reason it's like, even if I don't feel it, I'll still just say the prayer. 
I, I still have to sit on the couch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you, you, you were talking about um, that awareness that, that had come about in step three. And I, something that came to mind for me in listening was, was an experience that I had um, early in recovery. And it was just this, uh, I haven't thought about it in years, but it was just this, this really simple shift that was like, the universe is not against me. Wow. It was, it was this thing of everything I need is provided for me. I am cared for. I had just gotten a day or two before a, uh, a check, unexpected money in the mail. I, it was something that uh, some stock that my grandmother had, had bought many, many years ago had a dividend that had never been paid off, and, and it was to me. And, and that ultimately that it went. And so I got this check for like $75 or something in the mail. And then a couple days later, I you know, go home before going to the meeting and I check the mailbox and damn if there's not an unexpected bill for $75. <laughs> and I am so pissed off on the 20 minute drive from my home to the clubhouse where the meeting was. And as I'm about to turn into the clubhouse, I realized, wait a minute, I just got the money to cover this unexpected bill. And it was just a complete, it, instead of every time I get something, something comes to take it away yeah, from me. Yeah. This perspective yeah. shift of yeah. every time I need something, I have what I need. And from it was just, it was a small thing, but it was that moment of shift. Yeah, that's a really good point because it is really often about perspective, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I grew up hearing it could be worse. You know, somebody has it mm -hmm. worse than you. Be grateful. But that didn't always comfort. Like, that didn't comfort me. It's a little negative. Yeah, <laughs> it felt negative, too. There's a little bit of shut up to it as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm... <laughs> Could be worse. <laughs> and I think that sunny. <laughs> sunny. <laughs> I think that whenever you have something serious going on, it's it's appropriate to acknowledge it. Rather than brushing it aside as unimportant because someone's worse off. Right. Right? But then you have to take that and you can only I can only afford to sit in it for so long before I have to get on the other side of it and say, this is not the worst thing that could happen. Like, just like you said, it's the perspective. I heard Don say something the other day that was perfect. And, and it's just about like, do you, do you choose to look at it like, Oh God, you know, thank you. I'm alive. Or, Oh, look what I, what kind of pain I'm in right now, mm -hmm. you know? And, the reality is that there might be pain, but what's going to keep me energized, optimistic, and moving forward is the positive thought, not the negative one. What I focus on is what I get. That's right. What you feed grows. Oh, yeah. The bad wolf and the good wolf and all <laughs> yeah. that. One, all these wonderful stories that are out there about yeah. that thing or whichever one you feed is yeah. what grows. And I fed the negative for a long time and I got and I went you know pretty deep down and it my bottom looked like didn't look like other people's bottoms 
And when I was in treatment, people said, you don't look that bad. Like, what did you lose? I don't, I don't, I don't hear anything you lost. Like, are you sure you belong here? And that was a dangerous thing for me to hear. Sure, it really sure. was. And then one-on-one with my counselor, she said, okay, Rita, we're going to address this right now. Because I, I could see the shift in your face when they said that to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, okay, so think about where you started, you know, as a child or your expectations of yourself, your dreams. You know, you had graduated college. You had a good job. Did you have that when you... Finished? No. No. <laughs> you know, did you think that you would be sitting on your kitchen stool drunk every day? Not able to, like, fulfill any of those dreams that you had about your life? No. Were you out of control? <laughs> yeah. You never wanted to look at yourself in the mirror anymore? were afraid to take a shower because you were afraid you were going to fall down and nobody would be there to get you, you know, all those things. That's, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Arrested for public intoxication. Do you think you were going to spend time in jail, Rita? (laughs) (laughs) I love that we laugh at stuff like this. Yeah, I I know, but it's, that's so true. I mean, that, Orange isn't my color. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it described uh, like it's a it's an elevator going down, and you, you it's yeah. not necessary to ride the elevator all the way down to the bottom floor. You can get off on a higher level, but that doesn't mean you're not on the elevator. That's right. Well, and an, another thing that comes to mind with all this though is, you know, you hear all these these dismissals of problems. You know, somebody's got it worse, first world problems, this, that, and the other, my bottom, high bottom, low bottom, all that kind of stuff. But really what we're talking about here is pain. And the pain, the fear, the, the, the discomfort that I experience with whatever high level problem I've got can still feel the same as someone else's low bottom. The psychic pain is the same. The psychic, exactly. And that's what we're talking about here. And and so to to discount someone else's pain as not being bad enough really is a disservice to all of us. That's true. What I was thinking about is the the experience that you had, Sam, with the money showing up and then you, and then after that point and and Rita gave other examples, and the thing is after that point, I can go back, and when I am in a time of trouble, I can. it gives me some trust that I'm going to be okay. You know, I, this, is, this situation's bad, and I need to acknowledge this situation that I'm uncomfortable with, or, if, or, or it, in my case, like when I was in surgery and in pain. But I knew that I can get through this and get to the other side, because I've had the experience now. Bingo. And I've been sober long enough. I trust that AA is going to work. My higher power is going to be there and that I'll be able to get through it and get to the other side. And that's not something I had at the beginning. But I knew that everyone in AA believed that. I knew that my sponsor believed that when I was talking with him. And I latched on to that. At one point he said, Okay, I I told him I I just can't believe in God. It's just not cool 
And he said, well, I understand. But do you believe that I believe? And I was like, he was a drummer. So he was cool. He was a jazz drummer. I was like, well, he's cool. Yes, I believe you believe. And he said, okay, well, then use my higher power. And I did that. I did that. And it was like, okay to do. (laughs) And then eventually I had an experience that was real for me. And then that, that became my higher power, the real thing that happened to me. It's kind of like the saying, you know, when people say, don't give up before the miracle happens. Mm-hmm. And I held on to that. I, I cried every day in every meeting for the first more over a year. And if we were sitting in a circle in the room, I would start crying before the person to my left even finished, even started talking, because I knew I was going after that person. So it was the anticipation of sharing that just brought tears to my eyes. And the thought that it could ever get better, you know, my sponsor kept saying, it's okay, you have a lot of pain to shed. That's, this is your, this is your soul, this is your being shedding the fear and shedding the sadness. So let it all out. Just let it all out. And in its place, when that was, you know, like interspersed, little joys came around. I grew up in a family that laughed all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, one of the things I told my sponsor early on was, when will I, I look forward to laughing again, because I don't know when the last time I laughed. I don't know when I had like a real laugh. She and I were at a meeting one night and it happened. (laughs) And we got out to the car. We were riding together and she looked at me and she said, do you know what happened tonight? And I said, yeah, I do. (laughs) I said it felt so good because it was real and genuine and there was connection with it. And, um, my laughter was back, and I felt like a human being again, only better than I had been. What a great sponsor. Yeah, she really was. Is. Uh-huh. But. <laughs> I love that story. I mean, that yeah. just, you know, often, not not every morning, but often uh, part of my morning prayer is to uh, is, is about joy. You know, and, and I will even say, because, you know, sometimes it's just such drudgery to get out of bed. As I'm down on my knees, I'm, I'm like, and I, I don't even remember exactly how I put it, but it's, it's something along the lines of let me smile, let me laugh, let me share it. And I wind up smiling while I'm, I'm asking for that. It's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, this has got me smiling. Just being, this, has been, <laughs> this has been a great interview. Rita, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks You're for welcome. coming. And Thank you. don't go anywhere. Because Doc Rita, Doc, (laughs) 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 it's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time. Don't see it. Don't. 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 Sunny. How I love you. How I love you. (laughs)
<laughs> if you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. Uh, so we do have a question here from Joy in Chicago. Joy writes, beer and liquor signs are everywhere. Will I ever stop noticing all of them? Ooh, wow. That's interesting. There are beer signs here in uh, North Carolina, but they're not everywhere. But there certainly is alcohol everywhere. And it's on television. And I would see beer commercials and j they would just jump on me. So I just turned them off. I remember one time I saw a sign that said uh, that there was art opening. I'm an artist and there was an art opening for another artist that I like. And they had in their advertisement said, cold beer. And that jumped on me like, uh, it was awful. It was like, it got so angry. Why did they have to say cold beer? They could have just said that they were going to have beer. But <laughs> I was not... I, I was not neutral, and eventually I became neutral to alcohol. One time I was at a party, and I had been sober for about three months. I was standing in the kitchen. Everybody, it was, it was one of the first times I was comfortable at a party, and I was not drinking. And people were drinking, and they were coming in the kitchen and talking to me and having conversations. And I looked around, and I was standing in front of a box of wine, and everybody was coming in there get, filling up their wine. They weren't really coming in talking to me. They were coming in to get some wine, and I was there, and they were talking to me. But what was amazing was I didn't even know it. I didn't know that that was happening. I was completely neutral. I didn't think that was going to happen for the longest time. I have... Maybe we'll put this uh, at the end. I have a story, though. Where when is I was, this going? <laughs> I, when I was in Germany, I was visiting a friend that I was communicating with there. He was an artist, and he said, Don, you have to see this. And he, he said, because you're American, you will, you will like this. And we drove a, around the curve of a mountain, and it was right next to this giant billboard beer. It was a giant bottle of beer, kind of looked like a Miller High Life, and it said, Private Hell. <laughs> <laughs> Which in German was, it was a private stock, and hell means light, so it was a light beer. But in English, <laughs> and particularly for me, it was Private <clears throat> Hell. So sometimes... These beer signs can play out in a different way than you That's a good fact. <laughs> That's a good one. What about you, Rita? Signs. You know, the commercials, that was a good thing that you brought up because I remember wishing that I had one of those fast-forward tickers on the television to, so I could just flip through the commercials because they were everywhere. Mm -hmm. The signs were overwhelming to me. They, they really were. And I noticed them... I'll just say I noticed them at first, and then I didn't realize I didn't notice them. Oh, yeah. So it just happened organically, I guess, that it's kind of like if a building is up on your way to work, and you drive home, and the building's gone, and you go, hmm, what was there? Yeah. <laughs> You'll yeah. see what's what missing. What was in that spot? And it was missing, it was missing, but I didn't see it. 
that it was that I had gotten better. But I like the word neutrality, right? Because it, that's kind of what happened. Like I'm, the signs are there, but they don't bother me anymore. There aren't any fewer of them. I've I'm the one that's changed. The world hasn't changed. That's right. Yeah, my experience has been has been similar. Um, I don't see them anymore. I don't see the alcohol when I'm uh, around it. It's just I'm neutral. But it does take me back thinking about this to in early recovery. I remember, so the last time that I got drunk, I had been mowing the yard on a Saturday, been working out in the yard, and I you know, surveyed my, my wondrous realm and the glow of the evening, light, setting sun and all that. You got the scene. I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, screw it. I want to get drunk. Mm-hmm. And so I got drunk. But it was this thing that working in the yard kind of got attached to that one for me. And I was never a beer drinker or anything like that. It was like vodka shots and we're going for that. Um, and so I was working in the yard. I was uh, sober at least a year. And we had moved to a new home. And I was working in the yard. And I had need to go into town to get something from one of the hardware stores. And driving back, there was a beer truck at a um, convenience store that I passed. And that beer truck just stuck in my head. And it was one of those things. And I again, I wasn't even a beer drinker. And it was one of those things it just would not get out of my head. So I did the things that I learned to do. I prayed about it. I called people. And it, very quickly, that beer truck was not in my head. But it was one of those things that it wasn't quickly and easily dismissed. Another thing that I remember, so here in North Carolina, we don't have liquor sold in uh, convenience stores and things like that. They're sold in state-run stores called the ABC Store, Alcoholic Beverage Control. And I remember I was riding with my partner. We were both sober, uh, newly sober, and we drove past one of these signs that said ABC, and the first thing that hit me was a bad choice. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of where I was that's with it. That's funny. But um, I, um, I don't see the signs now. It, it's not an active look away type of thing. It's not that I'm scared that I'm going to run into it. It's just, it's not an issue. And I'm really grateful for that. You bet. I thought that was going to be a gentle owl, but it sounded like its feathers got ruffled there at the end. It doesn't have feathers, Sam. It's boiled. So it's... Ooh, <laughs> owl flesh. <laughs> owl flesh. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Do you have the audacity to doubt my veracity and dare to insinuate that I would prevaricate on something as insignificant as that?
wish I could remember being able to say that when I was drinking. <laughs> I wish I could remember to be able to say that now. <laughs> now, here's here's another no, one that me. I had from, from the drinking days. Now, believe it or not, here we go. Let's see if I can do this. Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it'll make my batter bitter. So she bought a bit of butter, better than her bitter butter, and she put it in her batter, and the batter was not bitter, so it was better. Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ah, I know Sally's a seashell. Good Lord. <laughs> now, can you speed that up a little bit when I you do the, the plate? <laughs> that was fast. So you know,